<laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Let me just say it is good to be here tonight, and I want to thank you so much for having us. Uh, such a joy to be back here and see what God is doing in your church and, and what God's going to do, amen, in the, in the future. And it's so exciting, your new building and all that's happening. So uh, we're, we're certainly, uh, you're certainly in our prayers, and I hope you'll keep us in your prayers in the days to come. There's a little book I want to make sure I don't forget to mention that uh, I just have been really promoting uh, that's out on our book table called Is God Anti-Gay? And, I, and this is a uh, great, great little book. And I don't know if I had it here last time when I was here, but I really promote this book everywhere I go. It's a wonderful book to help you understand really how to speak the truth in love and have a better understanding to those in the same-sex movement. And I know many people have bought this book if they put it in an office somewhere or something, where a doctor's office, in his office or somewhere. Uh, this is a book people will pick up and read just from the title. And it's a great little book. It's got a lot of truth in it, and it will really be a help to you, I believe, and what we're facing in our day and time, certainly in America today. Well, how many of you guys have ever been mad at your wife before? Raise your hand. Ever been mad at your wife? Y'all are, y'all, y'all are a bunch of chickens, I tell you what. <laughs> okay. All right. How many, of you, how many of you wives have ever been mad at your husbands before? Janie, raise your hand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How many of you parents have ever been mad at your children before? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. And let's be fair. How many kids have ever been mad at mom and dad before? Raise your hand. Wow. They, a lot of kids in there. Their hands went up quick. So what, I'm, what I've really established here tonight is I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of mad people. Amen. And uh, I want to deal with that uh, more tonight in a message I think I uh, hope will be a, a real blessing to you because certainly we all the time are, are facing conflict in our relationships, whether it's husband and wife, like we saw earlier in the service, uh, <laughs> or whether it's parents and children or brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I want to share a word with you that I hope will be a tremendous help to you. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, and look with me at verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 5. Luke chapter 17, verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 5. The Bible says, Then said he, or Jesus, unto his disciples, It's impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and were cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Now, notice the response of this teaching in verse 5 of the apostles. And the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Father, we humbly come before you in Jesus' name tonight, and I pray, God, that you would do that work through your Holy Spirit that only you can do. And, Father, I pray, God, for your Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. I pray, God, that you would touch our hearts, break our hearts. Father, that we might be more like Christ. 
Father, I pray tonight, Lord, that you would help us to stay focused on your word and we would be hearers of it, but not just hearers of it, but doers of it. Father, I know that Satan does not like what I'm preaching tonight. He does not like what I'm exposing about one of his traps tonight. So, Father, I pray, God, tonight that there would be no distractions. I pray in Jesus' name against any distractions that he might try to cause in our service tonight, I pray you'd hedge around and protect this place that we're in tonight. And may our attention be totally focused on you. And God, I pray you do a great work here tonight in our midst for your glory. Father, if there's someone here tonight that's lost without Christ, I pray, God, for their salvation. Lord, I want to thank you again in advance for all that you're going to do. For we pray, we ask these things, agreeing together in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. I want to talk tonight about one of the most deadly traps that Satan will ever lay in your path. I've seen it destroy friendships. I've seen it destroy marriage relationships. I've seen it destroy parent-child relationships. I've actually seen it destroy churches, divide churches really right down the middle. It's called the trap of offense. Notice in verse 1, this word offense. Jesus said it's impossible but that offenses will come. Now, it's a very interesting word because the Greek word for offense is a word scandalon. It refers to the part of a trap to which the bait is attached, or it refers to the trigger of a trap. In some translations, it says it's impossible that stumbling blocks will come. But this refers to a part of a trap that might be laid in our path that would cause us to stumble or be ensnared, we might say, in it. It's interesting that Jesus said it's impossible, but that offenses, notice what he says, they will come. He doesn't say they might come. He didn't say maybe they will come. He says what, church? They will come. It's impossible, but these entrapments will come to each one of us. But it's interesting, at the end of this verse, he gives a stern warning to those through whom they come. In fact, he says in verse 2, it's better for them that a millstone hung about their neck and they were cast into the depths of the sea, then that they should offend one of my little ones. Now, when he talks about little ones here, he's not just talking about little children. He's talking about his little ones. That is, all of us as children of God. Why would Jesus give such a stern warning to that person through whom offenses come? Hold your finger, if you would, at Luke chapter 17, and turn with me, if you would, to Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. And I think Paul gives us, uh, some enlightenment concerning why Jesus gives such a stern warning about offense. Look with me at Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. And in this, Paul writes a letter of encouragement to young Timothy and exhorts him to be a faithful minister. But when we get down to verse 24, he says this, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves or those that are in quarrels against each other, those who are offended at one another. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, notice verse 26, and that they may recover themselves out of the, what? What's the next word there? Snare. Snare is an entrapment of who? Of the devil. Notice the end of the verse. Who are taken captive by him or the devil at his will or to do his will, or to do his bidding. So we might say that offense is a tool of Satan 
to bring people into bondage or to bring them into captivity. Therefore, those who are in opposition, those who are in quarrels, those who are offended at one another fall into this snare and entrapment of the devil to do his will or to do his bidding. Now, we know as a child of God that uh, Satan cannot take away our salvation. We are secure in Christ. Amen. Nothing can take away our salvation. But the devil is going to do everything he possibly can to make you as ineffective as a Christian as he possibly can. And this is one of the schemes. This is one of the tactics that Satan often uses to take us out of the bidding, out of the will of God into his bidding or to do his will. Let me just remind you here tonight that Satan's will is to destroy this church. Satan doesn't like this church. Amen. He doesn't like this church because this church is all about Jesus Christ. Satan, let me just remind you here tonight, Satan hates your marriage. Satan would love nothing better than to destroy your marriage. Satan would love nothing better than to destroy your children. Satan hates the family. I believe the number one tack in America today is against the family. He knows if he can destroy the family, that he can destroy our civilization. He can destroy this nation. And I believe this is one of the schemes, one of the tactics that Satan is using to destroy our churches, to destroy our families, to destroy even our nation. So we might say to do and stay in the will of, will of God, we must stay free from this thing called offense. It's no wonder that Jesus says, Woe to that person through whom offenses come. It were better for him that a millstone hung about his neck, and he were cast into the depths of the sea, than that he should offend one of my little ones. Now notice in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, it says to the acknowledging of the truth. If God peradventure will give them repentance, repentance to what? To the acknowledging of the truth. We might say, what truth is he talking about there? He's talking about the truth that they have been offended. The truth that they have been captured in this ensnarement of the devil called offense. Now, Satan knows how to trap us. He knows what bait to use on the trigger of the trap of offense. I said the word offense in the Greek is scandalon. It refers to the trigger of a trap. And Satan knows how to bait that trigger to draw us into it so that we might be trapped into this entrapment of the devil. Now, you say, preacher, what is that bait? Well, if you think about it in your home, for example, if you've got a mouse in your house and you want to catch that mouse, you take a mouse trap and you put some bait on the trigger, you put some cheese on the trigger of that trap to lure that mouse to take that cheese. And when he does, the trap springs and the mouse is caught inside. And Satan, again, knows how to bait that trigger of offense to draw us into it so that we'll be entrapped in his trap of offense. And you say, again, preacher, what is the bait he uses? Well, simply stated, the bait that Satan uses to draw us into this trap of offense is our pride. It's our pride. You see, our pride says it's not fair how I've been treated. Our pride says, I've got my rights. Our pride says, don't let somebody treat you that way. Our pride says, I'm justified in feeling the way that I feel. Augustine, one of the church fathers, says, pride is a mother of sin that is pregnant with all other sins. What a statement that is. Pride is a mother sin that is pregnant with all other sins. C.S. Lewis says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is a complete anti-God state of mind. 
You see, pride enthrones self and dethrones God. No wonder, again, God says, I hate pride. No wonder God says, I'll give grace to the humble, but I'll resist the proud. Now, I want to answer several questions here tonight in this message. Very important questions if you're taking notes here tonight. And the first question is this. Who potentially can offend you the most? Who is it? And that's a very important question. Who is it that potentially can offend you the most? Now, let me stop before I go into this any further and just say if the Holy Spirit of God brings to your mind someone that has offended you or someone that you have offended, don't ignore that God is working. He is revealing, granting you repentance to the acknowledgement of that truth. So don't ignore the Holy Spirit tonight as God speaks to our hearts. Here's the first question. Who potentially can offend you the most? Well, the person who potentially can offend you the most is a person you care the most about. It's a person that is the closest to you. For example, if I was walking down the street downtown in Eugene and somebody yelled across the street, Hey, Baldy, how you doing over there? That wouldn't bother me because I don't know them. I don't care what they think about my head. I don't know them from Adam. But if I'm sitting in my living room and Debbie walks through and says, Hey, Baldy, how you doing today? Well, that could be a little bit offensive to me because I care about what Debbie thinks about me. She is close to me. I care very much about her opinion. You know, the bloodiest wars that have ever been fought are what kind of wars? Civil wars where you have sometimes... A brother against a brother. Sometimes a father against a son. Sometimes a neighbor against a neighbor. Lawyers will tell you the most vicious legal cases that they ever try are what kind of cases, would you guess? Divorce cases because you have a husband and wife who at one point stood before a preacher and said, I do, I promise to love you for all my life until I die. And now they're so offended to the point that they literally hate each other and are getting a divorce with each other. In fact, as we look in Scripture, we see a a good example of this, I think, in Psalm 55 and verse 12, where David talks about his counselor, Epithaphel. He says this, For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. He said, Then I could have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man mine equal, my guide or counselor, and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together, and we walked into the house of God in company. David said, listen, if that had been my enemy, it wouldn't have been so hard to be betrayed. But Epithel, you're my counselor. We sat down, and we've had counsel together. We sat down, and we've ate meals together and broke bread together. And you have betrayed me. Now, the principle is, I think, very, very important to remember And that is a person who potentially can offend you the most is a person that is the closest to you, the person that you care the most about. We might say the closer the relationship, the greater for the potential of being offended. Now, this brings us to the second question, a very important question also. What happens when we are offended and do not come to an acknowledgement of this truth? Look with me at another word picture that God gives us in Scripture in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 19. I think a very insightful word picture about someone being offended. Look at it with me. Proverbs 18, verse 19. It says, a brother offended is harder to be one than what? A strong city. And their contentions are like the bars of a castle. A brother is offended is harder to be one than a strong city. Now, Now, to understand this picture that God has given us, we need to understand what a strong city looks like. 
And a strong city is a fortified city. It's a city that has high walls around it. And the reason these high walls around the city is to protect those who are projected to be or perceived to be enemies of the city from getting inside the city. It's to protect the inhabitants inside the city from those who are enemies of the city outside the city. Somewhere in that wall, there's a gate that they let those whom they are friends to the city inside the city, but that gate is closed then so that those outside the city who are enemies of the city cannot get inside. So here's a picture. Someone who becomes offended starts building these fortified walls around themselves to protect themselves from being further hurt or being further offended. And they build these tall walls around themselves to protect themselves. But what they don't realize is at the same time they're protecting themselves, they're imprisoning themselves inside of these walls of offense. One writer puts it this way. He says, some people are like medieval castles. Their walls keep them safe from being hurt. They protect themselves emotionally by permitting no exchange of feelings with others. No one can enter. They're secure from attack. Have inspection of the occupant finds him or her lonely rattling around his castle or her castle all alone. The castle dweller is a self-made prisoner. He or she needs to feel loved by someone, but the walls are so high, it's difficult to reach out or for anyone else to be able to reach in. You see, when you're offended, you cannot give unconditional love. An unconditional love gives others the right or the potential, we might say, to to hurt us. So 1 Corinthians 13 says that God's love does not seek its own. Therefore, when we stay offended, God's love begins to grow stagnant and cold within us. And if we're not careful, the next step is we become very resentful of the one who's hurt us. I think someone aptly said resentment is like drinking poison when you're waiting for the other person to die. Drinking poison while you're waiting for that other person to die. And as a result, your life becomes stagnant within the walls in which you have imprisoned yourself. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, very familiar verse, gives insight to this too. It says, Look, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. And it's very interesting in that verse, and thereby many be defiled. Many be defiled. You know, when someone's offended, it doesn't just affect them, but it affects everyone around them. If it's a husband, it affects his wife, it affects his children, those in the family. If it's a church member, it doesn't just affect the church member. It begins to be a cancer in that church and affect everybody in that church. Many can be a defile. No wonder Jesus said, woe unto that person through whom offenses come. It were better for him that a millstone were hung about his neck and were cast in the depths of the sea than that he should offend one of my little ones. Allowing these walls of fence in our lives gives place to the devil to build strongholds out of them. I remind you of Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 and 5 where it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You say, preacher, what is a stronghold anyway? Well, a good definition, I think, of a stronghold is a mental habit pattern that is contrary to the will of God. A mental habit pattern that is contrary to the will of God. It's kind of like having a vinyl record. Have, how many of you ever had vinyl records before? And you had a turntable. We're going back in time some here, okay? And you take that needle and put it in that groove in that vinyl record and it, 
And that needle follows that groove around that record and plays that music. But what happens when that record is scratched? You put that needle in that record and it gets to that scratch and it plays the same tune, what? Over and over and over and over and over and over again. It defaults to that same position in that groove. And someone who has a stronghold, and we're talking about a fence here tonight, it's kind of like that that groove is in their heart where that they default to that groove when something happens. When somebody approaches them, it immediately goes into that groove, that stronghold of offense. One writer says it this way, a stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness. It causes me to accept as unchangeable something that we know is contrary to the will of God. If you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, notice something here. It says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. When we have a stronghold, it starts to distort a true understanding and knowledge of God. A person who is offended begins to even filter the word of God through their hurt. I've seen this happen so many times. I'm sure your pastor has seen this happen so many times. You can see a couple in a church who's been regular and faithful to a church and they've heard the word of God preached and they know principles from the word of God and they become offended. A husband and a wife or a wife and a husband or a brother, sister in Christ. I've had many couples come in my office and sit down in the office that had been in a church situation like that for many, many years. And they will say something like this. I know what God's word says about this, but what's the next word? But there is no but. Amen. That's what God's word says. That's what God's words. But they say, but I'm sure God understands how I feel. Or I'm sure God wants me to be happy. And what they what they're doing is they're filtering their hurt even through the word of God. And sometimes you look at them, you say, how could they do what they do? They've heard the truth. They know the truth. Well, they're offended. And they begin to filter the truth through the hurt, the walls of their hurt. And they distort a true understanding of the Word of God. Now, what will happen if we don't deal correctly with this offense? Turn with me. Another insightful passage is in Matthew 24 and verse 10. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 10, Jesus is answering the question concerning His return. The disciples have asked Him this question. And in this verse, it's very interesting. He gives us an insight here. He says, and then... Shall many be offended? Let me just stop right there and say, I've never, I travel all over the country. I deal with couples all the time, families. We do conferences all the time. I've never seen a time where I've seen more people offended, brothers and sisters in Christ, husbands and wives, parent to children, than I've seen today. He said, and then shall many be offended. But notice the progression here. It's a progression in this verse. He says, and shall betray one another. And then it says, and shall what? Hate one another. Okay, offense leads to betrayal, and betrayal leads to hatred. The offended person is interested in self-preservation, walls of protection. The betrayed person seeks his or her own protection at the expense of someone else. And if repentance doesn't stop this progression, it moves to hatred where that person literally hates that other person. And Jesus said, if you hate your brothers, the same as what? It's the same as murder. Amen. Again, no wonder Jesus said, Woe unto that person through whom offenses come. It were better for him that a millstone hung about his neck and he would cast in the depths of the sea than that he should offend one of my little ones. 
I want you to turn with me, and I want to give you a quick example of this in Genesis chapter 37. So turn there with me if you would. Genesis chapter 37, a very familiar passage where we see brothers offended at brothers. Genesis chapter 37, look with me at verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Let me just stop right there. Is there a problem in this home? Amen. I mean, we see a problem right off the bat. Here's favoritism of one child over all the other children. So we see a father favoring Joseph. And it tells us why. Because he was a son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. Notice verse 4. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they what? They hated him. This has moved from being offended all the way to this progression of hatred. They literally hated their brother. And notice the end of verse 4, and could not speak peaceably unto him. That's a good clue for us. Is there somebody in your life that you can't speak peaceably to? Is there somebody that when you see them coming down through the mall that you try to walk on the other side to avoid seeing them or talking to them? You can't speak peaceably to them. If there's somebody in your life like that, then a little red flag ought to go up in your heart and say, you know, I need to get that right because the reason I can't speak peaceably to them is because I've been offended by them or I have offended them and I need to get that right. They couldn't speak peaceably to him. Notice verse 5, And Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it his brethren and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and behold, your sheep stood around about and made obeisance to my sheep. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. It's kind of like my four boys, and Philip's the youngest. And Philip gets up in the morning, and he tells his brothers to gather around Josh, Daniel. Adam, I I want to tell you about a great dream I had last night. In my dream, all of y'all were bowing down to me. What do you think his brothers would say to him? You're crazy. You think we're going to bow down to you? You're nuts. You must have ate too much pizza or something last night. We're not bowing down to you. Who do you think you are anyway? Let me stop and, and remind you. Who gave Joseph this dream? God gave him this dream. Had Joseph done anything wrong? No, Joseph couldn't help it that his father favored him. That was not his fault. He did. He couldn't help that. Joseph couldn't help it that God gave him this dream. God gave it to him. Notice the story here. Look at verse 18. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired to do what to him? To slay him, to kill him. They were literally ready to kill their own flesh and their own blood, their own brother. Look at verse 26. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay or kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh and his brethren, it says, were content. So we know that Joseph was sold into slavery. He was sold into slavery in that day and time to be sold into slavery was thought to be worse than even being killed. So Joseph is sold into slavery. He ends up in Potiphar's house and... Potiphar's wife comes after him, and he he does what every man should do in that situation. He does what? He runs. Amen? He runs from her, and he's accused falsely. 
Joseph ends up in prison. Now, put yourself in Joseph's sandals, if you can, for a minute, at this point in this story, not knowing the rest of the story. Here he is. His father favors him. His brothers hate him. His brothers conspire to kill him. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in Potiphar's house. His wife accuses him falsely. He ends up in prison. And Joseph has done nothing what? He's done nothing wrong. Now, would it have been easy for Joseph to be offended at his brothers? Absolutely. Would it be easy for Joseph to be offended at Potiphar's wife? Sure. Let me ask you this question. Would it have been easy for Joseph even to be offended at God? God, how could you let this happen to me? But if Joseph had been offended, he would have been taken out of the will of God in his life to be placed into the will of bidding of Satan. Now, we know the final story. We know the final word. Turn to Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Of course, that wasn't the end of the story for Joseph. He was betrayed. He was forgotten, put in prison. But at the end of the story, in chapter 50, his brothers are standing before him. And Joseph says this incredible thing in verse 20. But as for you, you thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is they, to save much people alive. Wow. He said, you did all this... For evil. But God took those evil acts you did and he turned them into something good to save much people alive. I really believe that God has a special plan for every person, every Christian in this building. Every one of us have a different calling in God's sovereign scheme. And there's people you can reach and people you'll talk to that I'll never reach and Pastor Nathan, Pastor Greg will never reach or never talk to. I believe God has a plan for us in some way to save much people alive, to make a difference in the community around us. But we have to be very, very careful that we do not become offended. Because when we become offended, it takes us out of the will of God and it places us in to this stronghold where that we begin to filter God's will and God's truth and start doing the bidding, even as a Christian, of the devil. Again, no wonder that Jesus says, Woe unto that person through whom offenses come. It were better for him that a millstone hung about his neck, and he would cast into the depths of the sea, than that he should offend one of my little ones. Now, this brings us to question three. And that question is this. How do I stay free then? How do I stay free from Satan's deadly trap of offense? How do I stay free from being offended? I want to remind you of a wonderful verse in Psalm 119 and verse 165. And it goes like this. Great peace have they which love thy, what? Law. And nothing shall, what? Nothing shall offend them. What a, what a great verse. Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing, I like that word, nothing shall offend them. So if we want to stay free from being offended, we need to... Fall in love with what? The Word of God. Amen? We need to fall in love with the Word of God. We need to fall in love with the laws of God. And God has many laws of love in His Word. I want to just share a few with you, just a few examples. We could share, stay here tonight for hours and share examples. Let me just remind you of a few. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, talking to a messed up Corinthian church who was suing each other, he says this, Now therefore, there's utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take the wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? What's the answer to that question? Why would they not take the wrong? Why would they not suffer themselves to be defrauded? Because of their what? Because of their pride. Because of their pride. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Another example. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus, you want me to do what? Love my enemy? Bless that, that person who just cursed me. You want me to do good to that person who hates me and pray for that person who despitefully uses me? Jesus said, yes, that's what I want you to do. Why would we not do that? Because of what? Because of our pride. Because of our pride. Can you see why God hates pride? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than who? themselves. God, you want me to esteem this brother right here better than myself? God says, yes. Esteem him better than me. Why would I not do that? Because of what, church? Because of my pride. That's why I wouldn't do that. Because of my pride. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32. And, and folks, if we could do some of these things, we could start, we would really start seeing, I believe, revival. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put Away from you with all malice. And be ye, what church? Kind one to another. Wow, what a great word. I love this next word, tenderhearted. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Why wouldn't I be kind? Why wouldn't I be tenderhearted? Why wouldn't I be forgiving towards someone else? Because of my pride. C.S. Lewis closed his comments on pride with these words. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you're not proud, you're very proud indeed. This teaching of Jesus is not easy. It's not an easy teaching. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 17, and let's go through the rest of this passage for just a moment and see what Jesus tells us to do. Luke chapter 17, look with me again. He asks us to do three things to begin with. Look at it with me in verse 3. The first thing he says is take heed to yourselves. He says, guard yourselves against being offended. Be on guard. He had said before in verse 1, it's impossible that offenses come. They're going to come down our path, so we better be on guard not to become offended. So the first thing he does, he gives us a warning. He says, take heed, be on guard against being offended. Then look in verse 3. If thy brother trespass against thee, here's the second thing. Do what, church? Rebuke him. Now, in the King James, that word rebuke is a very sounds very strong. It sounds like I'm to get in my brother's face and bless him out for what he did. That's not what that means. That word rebuke there actually means to cautiously confront that person that has 
potentially offended me or wronged me, present the facts as I see them, give them a chance to present the facts as they see them, that we might clear up the misunderstanding, that we might reconcile the relationship, go to them with the intent of reconciling the relationship with them. I've had some people say before, preacher, why should I go to them? They're the one who hurt me. And if that's your attitude, it's because of your what? Because of your pride. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's possible that you could ever say something to somebody that you didn't mean to be offensive that could offend them? And if they didn't tell you that it offended them, you might not ever know that. Absolutely. And the only way you could clear it up is if they come to you and tell you that you have done something offensive to them. So Jesus says, if somebody has offended you, if somebody has transgressed against you, sinned against you, go to them and try to clear it up. Rebuke them. Look at the third thing he says here. Thirdly, he says in verse 3, and if he repent, do what, church? Forgive him. Wow. Forgive them. I'll ask you a question. Is forgiveness simply seeking and accepting an apology, just saying, I'm sorry? Is that what forgiveness is? Well, I believe it's a little bit more. Biblically, it's a little bit more to it than just that. Because our forgiveness is to be modeled after God's forgiveness. I mentioned the verse in Ephesians 4.32 a moment ago. It says, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We're to forgive even as God has forgiven us. So our forgiveness is to be modeled after God's forgiveness. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we understand how much we've been forgiven? That's certainly a question we ought to ask ourselves. Do we understand how much we've been forgiven? Folks, listen, we're deserving of hell, amen? And if it wasn't for the grace and mercy of God, we will all be headed there right now. I love what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, I say to the glory of God in utter humility that whenever I see myself before God and realize even something of what my blessed Lord has done for me, I am ready to forgive anybody of anything. I love that. You know what he's saying? When I look to the cross and I survey the wondrous cross... Where Jesus Christ died for me and shed his blood for me. When I, when I keep my eyes on the cross and I am reminded of how much I have been forgiven, then I'm ready to forgive anybody of anything. Wow. God says when he forgives, he says in scripture, I will remember your sins no more. I'll remember them no more. He says, I will put them as far as the east is from the west. I'll bury them in the depths. Of the sea. We might say that forgiveness, biblically, is a promise to not remember. It's a promise to not remember. God didn't say He'll forget them. God's omniscient. But God does say, I will not remember them. I will not hold them against you. I will not hold them to your account. It's a promise to not remember. One writer says, To not remember means I will not bring up these matters to you or others in the future. I will bury them and not exhume the bones to beat you over the head with them. I'll never use these sins against you again. Wow. Now, Jesus, in this teaching, covers three excuses that we use for not forgiving. 
but not reconciling a relationship. And I want you to look at them briefly with me just for a moment. And the first one we see is in verse 4. That is, I don't see any fruit. I don't see any fruit. Look at it with me. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Let's say we have a fellowship after church tonight, and somebody, you're standing there and minding your own business, and somebody walks by and steps on your foot. And they keep walking. They don't even acknowledge that they stepped on it. And you go to them, you rebuke them, you, you say, listen, do you know that you just stepped on my foot? It hurt pretty bad. And they say, well, I'm so sorry, would you forgive me for stepping on your foot? The Bible says you ought to what? Forgive them. Now, about 15 minutes later, you're standing there minding your business. The same person walks across the room and steps on your foot again. And keeps going and doesn't, doesn't stop. And you say, go over to them and say, did you know you just stepped on my foot a second time? And it hurt really bad. They say, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Would you forgive me? We're to do what? Forgive them. After seven times, you begin to wonder. (laughs) You're going to think, that guy is doing that on purpose. They're not repentant. But Jesus said, if your brother trespasses against thee seven times in a day, and he says he repents or repents, then he says you're to do what? Forgive them. This is how important this is to God in this teaching. He understands the importance for us to protect us from being offended at a brother, sister in Christ, someone else, that we be continually forgiving. And we need to understand that God is a righteous judge. Amen. He knows the motives of the heart. We can't see the motives of the heart, but God knows the motives of the heart. And he is a righteous judge. I'm reminded of about 10 years ago when I got a phone call and I was notified. I mentioned this morning a bad phone call. and I got another one about 10 years ago. And I have a sister who lived in Richmond, Virginia that sold real estate. And somebody came by our office and, and shot her and killed her. And I got that phone call about 10 years ago. And my sister, another sister who lives in Richmond, Virginia, often said to me, Sam, it's just hard for that knowing that person is going free out there. And the law messed up the investigation. They've never found out who did it. And I just keep telling her, I said, Mary, listen, God knows who killed our sister. And God is a righteous judge. You can trust God that he will take care of it. And folks, we just need to remember that God is a righteous judge. And Jesus says, listen, maybe you don't see any fruit But don't use that as an excuse not to forgive. Now, look at the second excuse in verse 5 and 6. And you can just pull this verse out of Scripture, and it seems to be very spiritual. Because the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. They're saying, Jesus, to do what you just said for us to do, we need more what? We need more faith. So here's the second excuse. I, I need more faith to do what you just said. But look at what Jesus says in verse 6. He says, And the Lord said, If you had the faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you might say unto the sycamore tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. Jesus says, If you had the, the minuscule faith of a mustard seed, you can, you can move this tree. Jesus is saying, Don't give me the excuse that you need more faith. 
It isn't a question of faith. It's a question of obedience. And then the third excuse he covers in verse 7 through 10 is, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like forgiving that person. Listen, folks, if we waited till we felt like forgiving somebody, we never would. Amen? We'd never do it. So look at with me at verse 7 through 10. But which of you having a servant plowing a feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he has come in from the field, go and sit down. Go sit down and have some meat. And will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I've eaten and drunken and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Now, the point here is his servant comes in from the field. He's tired and worn out. He doesn't feel like fixing his master's meal, but that is his duty. That is what he is called to do. Look at verse 9. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? He says, I, I throw not out. I don't think so. So likewise ye, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty that which it was our duty to do. Jesus said, you may not feel like it, but you are my servant and you do what is your duty to do. Don't give me the excuse that I don't see any fruit. Don't give me the excuse that I need more faith. Don't give me the excuse I don't feel like it. Obey my teaching. Obey my word. He says, make sure if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent... Forgive him. Forgive him. Forgiveness is not about feelings. It's about a promise. And where forgiveness is to be modeled after God's forgiveness. I want you to bow your heads tonight as we close. And heads about and eyes are closed for just a moment tonight. And I want to pray a prayer for us that Paul prays in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9 through 11. And these are the words of the Apostle Paul in his prayer in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and the praise of God. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that we would, as brothers and sisters, be free of offense till the day of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that this word would take root in our hearts. And, Father, that if there's someone, Lord, that has offended us, or someone that we have offended, that you would grant us repentance to the acknowledging of that truth. Father, that we might confess and repent and reconcile, that we might be taken out of the ensnarement or the snare of the devil to do his will. Father, I pray for freedom from captivity and bondage for brothers and sisters in Christ tonight that may be in offense. And, Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to practice your laws of love. Lord, that, Father, that we might not take the bait of our pride. Father, we would walk humbly. 
humbly before you. We would walk humbly before each other. Father, I pray, God, if there's a husband, a wife here tonight that's hurt by their spouse, that there would be forgiveness granted. If there are parents that have been hurt by their children or children by their parents, there would be forgiveness granted. If there's a brother or sister in Christ that's been offended by a brother or sister in Christ and his fellowship, that they would reconcile and forgiveness would be, would be granted. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you do an awesome work through your Holy Spirit in their hearts and their homes tonight, and that you would be glorified in all that we do. And I pray and I ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, Amen. I want to share with you tonight, and I'll turn it back over to the pastor in just a moment. Uh, again, just reminding you of a few resources we have on the table back here that I think would be helpful to you on this teaching tonight. One is A Loving Life. This is my absolute favorite book of last year, and uh, it's about the book of Ruth, going through the book of Ruth and God's said love. And that word said in Hebrew is the same word that is translated many times as covenant love, everlasting love, steadfast love in the Psalms. Uh, and he takes that and, and works it into the relationships uh, in the book of Ruth. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. It'll be a blessing to you. War of Words is the absolute best book that I have read on communication. How can I be an ambassador of my words for the Lord Jesus Christ to make sure that my words are what Jesus would have me say? Uh, that's a, a wonderful book, a gospel primer. I talked about keeping our hearts focused on Christ so that we might be forgiven even as we see how God has forgiven us. And, and this is a, a wonderful book in preaching the gospel to yourself daily, a good devotional book. And I mentioned some of these books this morning, the book by Mary on humility and the book on anger and choosing forgiveness by Nancy DeMoss. And, and these are wonderful resources. And we've got a lot of other resources out there on the book table for different things. If you've got a particular circumstance in your family, something you're facing, then tell us about it. We can probably recommend a book to you that might be very, very helpful to you if it's something with your children, somebody's getting married, or whatever it may be. Uh, we want to be a help to you. And I just want to thank you for having us here and uh, allowing us to minister here today. We've been blessed by being here, and we just uh, love you all, and I pray that you'll continue to, to pray up for us and keep us in your prayers. And don't forget, if you'd like to pick up this little book out there, Is God Anti-Gay? That's a wonderful resource, especially in the culture and day and time that we live. Pastor, God bless you. Wonderful, amen. Boy, I tell you what, you got to let that one soak in, don't you? I was wondering tonight, as you think of that word that he used tonight, where the Greek word for offense, scandalous. And he said tonight that, you know, one of the things is to understand if you have been offended. And I started thinking about that a little bit. And oftentimes, when offense comes in your life, guess what you do with it? You usually tell somebody else and not the person who offended you. Right? And that's dangerous. Because the Bible tells us that if something offends us about a person, what are we supposed to do? Go to that person. It says rebuke him or go to him. Charge him is with the word. And oftentimes you don't even know that uh, the offense has been given. But you can tell. And you need to maybe use this as a little... Uh, um, tool to help you is if I'm talking to somebody else about something that happened to me, then there's an offense, there's a wound inside here, 
and I'm maybe not dealing with it properly. And then when he said about remembering, if we continue to bring it up to other people, then apparently that offense is still in there, right? You're bringing it up. You're continuing to bring it up. And so have we really forgiven somebody if we continue to bring it up? Yes or no? No, we haven't. And so, you know, God spoke to my heart about that because I think we're all guilty of that, aren't we, to a degree. And so maybe use those markers to be very honest with ourselves because, you know, some people will say, well, I'm not offended, but yet deep down inside they really are. And it's so good to make it right with, with folks. Boy, we have such a God who has forgiven us. Amen and amen. He has forgiven us so much. Why don't we sing, in closing, marvelous grace, through number 38 of our loving Lord. We have a God who has forgiven us so much. I am thankful for that. Let's stand together. This will be our benediction tonight. Thank you, brother and sister Wood, for their ministry tonight to us. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount, mount born, fail in grace. Amen to that? Hebrews chapter 12. Thank you for coming. We'll see you out this week and pray for one another. God bless you. You're dismissed.